In 1907, a steamship docked on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Its passengers, filthy, exhausted people from the poorer parts of Europe, spilled out of the custom house into the slums surrounding the docks. It must have been a fearsome sight for the largely rural, uneducated newcomers. There was no space. Shabby, cramped tenements choked out every inch of light. Garbage lay uncollected in stinking, burning piles. A million dialects of Yiddish, Gaelic, Sicilian, Calabrian, and ghetto New York English echoed through the dense streets and alleys. Gang members, well-dressed and menacing, stood on every street corner, eyeing the newcomers, looking for recruits and victims. One of the younger immigrants was a 10-year-old named Salvatore Luciano. Fresh out of rural Sicily, we don't know how he felt when he first got off the boat. Perhaps he was excited, but probably he was terrified. He couldn't know that in ten short years he would run these violent, polyglot streets like a medieval baron. But that was a full lifetime and a name change away. For now, little Luciano was going to have to survive. The system of organized crime that was to dominate the 20th century criminal landscape was consciously created by two extraordinary men, Meyer Lansky and Lucky Luciano. These men would not only grow from the slums of New York to enrich themselves through crime, but also bring decades of order to the anarchic criminal world. Later in life, Meyer Lansky told friends and journalists that he wished he could have stayed in school and become an engineer, doctor, or lawyer. While a young Meyer was clearly torn between educated respectability and criminal profit, his close friend and crimey Lucky Luciano was different. Lucky was always going to be a gangster. Lucky was born Salvatore Luciana in 1897 in a small village in Sicily called Larcara Fridi. While other parts of Europe were going through the Industrial Revolution and seeing extensive political reform in the late 19th century, Italy generally, and Sicily in particular, remained an unequal, underdeveloped, feudal society. Sicily had long been cursed by invasions due to a strategic location on the Mediterranean, and over the past 3,000 years, nearly every expansionist empire, from the Greeks to the Caliphate to Napoleon, had dramatically invaded the island. By the 19th century, most of the land in Sicily was owned by aristocratic landlords, and most Sicilians were propertyless, desperately poor farmers. With a non-existent state, corrupt church, and brutal ruling class, poor Sicilians were forced to turn inwards, defining themselves by deep tribal loyalties to their extended families and villages. Luigi Barzini, in his book The Italians, observed that the Sicilians, and I quote, are taught in the cradle, or are born already knowing that they must aid each other, side with their friends, and fight with the common enemy, even when the friends are wrong and the enemies are right. Each must defend his dignity at all costs, and never allow the smallest slights and insults to go unavenged. They must keep secrets, and always beware of official authorities and laws. In other words, an honorable Sicilian would never snitch or turn to authorities for protection, even when that protection was available to them. To recognize or rely on any authority other than that of their family or immediate community was seen as cowardice at best, treason at worst. 
These values and norms, a rejection of imposed authority, a reliance of one's family and close community for protection, and a devotion to reckless, violent, personal and collective honor, were known collectively as mafia, and those who followed them were mafioso. As with all societies, the only real avenue for social advancement was violence, and from time immemorial, many poor Sicilians ganged up with cousins and neighbors to form armed bands, both to defend their rights and interests and to enrich themselves through banditry and extortion. During the turbulent 19th century, the better organized of these clans took advantage of the chaos and became responsible for law and order on most of the islands. Peasants turned to them to mediate disputes, and wealthy landowners, including the Catholic Church, turned to them to protect their property. By the 1870s, the Italian central government was openly contracting with these mafia clans to enforce basic laws and combat non-affiliated bandits. While the mafia clans provided a way to honor and wealth for a minority of Sicilian peasants, they were closed groups that often targeted non-affiliated peasants for extortion and generally sided with landowners in social disputes. Furthermore, the exacting norms of honor, vendetta, and tit-for-tat violence that the mafia clans were based on meant that Sicily was constantly torn apart by interseen clan conflicts that crippled the economy and cost innocent lives. Lucky's family were not associated with any of the major mafia clans and made their living through honest, back-breaking work. Like most of the other men in their village, Lucky's father worked in the local sulfur mine. Work in the mine was undignified and dangerous, and the miners, like all working people in Sicily, had no rights in the feudal islands. Four years before Lucky was born, miners attempted to unionize and were massacred by government troops. This poverty and lack of social mobility, along with endemic violence caused by feuding mafia clans, caused hundreds of thousands of Sicilians to leave the old country for America, where they joined millions of Jews, Irish, and other Italian groups in the teeming urban slums of America's big cities. In spring 1907, when little Lucky was just 10 years old, his family decided to leave the violence and crushing rural poverty of Sicily and take a new chance in America. Lucky's family got off the boat on the Lower East Side of Manhattan and settled right there in one of the cramped tenements that dominated the slum neighborhood. The Lower East Side was not a pleasant place to live. The year they moved in, the garbage collectors were on strike and engaged in running battles with police and strike breakers amidst apocalyptic mounds of decaying trash. Young Lucky's father got work as an unskilled laborer, and the family of five settled into a tiny, dark, three-room tenement, which was further crowded by the addition of another child. As his then-neighbor Meyer Lansky recalled, these apartments had barely enough space for a single person and were hot in the summer, cold in the winter. To make matters worse, Lucky's father was physically abusive and often beat Lucky and his siblings. As a result, Lucky largely found refuge in the chaotic, diverse streets of the Lower East Side. By the time he was 14, he was out of school and working as a shipping clerk for a Jewish hat merchant. It was also at this age that he became firmly ensconced in the streets. It's unclear when exactly Lucky started down the criminal path, but it was probably quite early. Criminal gangs of nearly all sorts plied their trades on the Lower East Side, and the streets were full of teenage hustlers and gang members looking for children to recruit as pickpockets and lookouts.
Lucky, being as he was an abused, desperately poor immigrant, would have been a perfect recruit for these exploitative criminals. In any case, Lucky finished up his eighth and last year of school at reform school, something that likely deepened his criminal skills and connections. By the time he was 14, he was probably already clicked up with one of the many loosely organized Italian youth gangs that prowled his neighborhood. It was at this age he bought his first gun. While showing it off to a homeboy, he accidentally shot himself in the thigh. It would be the first and last time Lucky would be shot. His law-abiding but abusive father was disgusted by Lucky's budding criminal career and responded by doubling down on the beatings. Eventually, Lucky's father found his gun and pointed it at Lucky, threatening to kill him for bringing disgrace on the family. According to Lucky, after this incident, he ran away from home. So I stopped coming home when he was around, Lucky later recalled. I'd sleep in empty apartments in the neighborhood or in pool halls. I'd only go home in the daytime to get a hot meal from my mother. But I stayed away from my old man as much as I could. At 14 years old, estranged from his family and homeless, Lucky had no other choice. The streets, dive bars, and bandos in his neighborhood became his home, and his gang of similarly situated immigrant street children became his family. This group of primarily Italian boys included future leaders in La Cosa Nostra, but that was decades away. Beyond demographics and shared struggle, Lucky and his homeboys were united by the very basic need and desire to make money. Lucky would work at the hat merchant until he was 18, but the $7 a day he made there wasn't enough, and his legal income was heavily supplemented by criminal activity. There were numerous criminal syndicates operating in the Lower East Side at this point, the largest being the Five Points Gang. The Five Points Gang was a loose coalition of primarily Irish and Italian drug dealers, gamblers, and brothel owners who would collaborate to fight shared threats and who pooled their money to bribe police and politicians. The gang's heyday was in the late 19th century, and by the 19-teens it was already losing some cohesion due to generational changes. But it was still the biggest game in town, and Lucky's nascent youth gang had an association with the larger organization. Lucky's gang quickly developed a reputation as fearless thugs who were game for any scheme. They would mug their neighbors for their pocket watches and gold chains, and Lucky later stated he tried to commit at least three of these muggings a day. They would run dope for five points drug dealers, and Lucky would be picked up for delivering a vial of heroin to a police informant when he was 18. They also ran street extortion schemes, shaking down street vendors, merchants, and notably scared Jewish kids on their way to school. When 18-year-old Lucky was picked up on the heroin charge, a probation report listed Lucky as defined by a criminalistic pattern of conduct. Vitally, the report also quotes the teenage Lucky as saying, I was never a crumb, and if I have to be a crumb, I'd rather be dead. Lucky did six months on the dope beef and dove headfirst back into the mix. He exited jail with more knowledge, connections, and credibility. He finally quit his legit job and became a full-time career criminal. It was also in prison when he stopped referring to himself by his Italian name, Salvatore, for the more American, Charlie. Around this time, he honed in on an extortion racket that would lead him to meet Meyer Lansky. Beyond introducing him to his future partner, the extortion racket also was an insight into Lucky's mind and what made him different from the average Lower East Side street thug. 
Much like his rural Sicilian homeland, the urban jungle of the Lower East Side was ripe for extortion. Not only were businesses and criminals forced to pay up, but anyone too weak to physically defend themselves was also expected to kick in for the right to walk the streets. For reasons that are unclear, the Jewish residents of the Lower East Side were especially vulnerable to predation. The Irish, who lived in great numbers in Lower Manhattan, had been in the city the longest, knew the turf, and most importantly had deep connections to the primarily Irish-American police department. Fearsome Irish gang members terrorized the neighborhood with police support, targeting their own people, but saving the worst for the newer Jewish and Italian immigrants. There was significant tension between Irish and Italian gang factions across New York. On the Brooklyn waterfront, a coalition of Irish gangs united in what was called the White Hand Gang in order to commit explicitly racialized violence against the Italian newcomers, who they referred to as blacks. The Irish gangsters in the Lower East were broadly similar, and often warred openly with Italian groups, calling them dagos, wops, and other slurs usually used on African Americans. However, despite the racial and cultural differences, Irish and Italians were united by devotion to the Catholic Church. Also, the mafia-warrior mentality that was ingrained in most Southern Italians meant that anti-Italian violence was almost always met with energetic retaliation. The Jews also had a well-organized criminal element, and in fact, many of the most feared gangsters and organizations active in the Lower East Side at this time were Jewish. However, by all accounts, it seems like a significant portion of the Jewish community in the Lower East Side had no stomach for brutal gang violence, and would rather be extorted than fight. The plight of Jews in the Lower East Side was of course made worse by rampant anti-Semitism. In the early 20th century, it was taken as a matter of faith by most Catholics that Jews were collectively and forever responsible for the death of Christ, and deserved to be punished. While some blocks of the Lower East Side were controlled by tough Jewish gangsters, solitary Jews couldn't walk across the neighborhood to work or school without risking assault or worse. Lucky for his part was not anti-Semitic. While the world he grew up in and the Cosa Nostra organization he was to found were both clannish, xenophobic, and crudely obsessed with ethnic and racial categories, from day one, Lucky was open to and interested in people of different cultural backgrounds. He had an apparently good relationship with his Jewish employers at the Hat Factory, and later on, when he was a king of the underworld, he would be known for fair, respectful dealings with Jews, Irish, Blacks, and other groups. However, while he was ethnically tolerant, he also needed money and spotted an opportunity to score some steady income. His gang of primarily Italian teenage thugs was a force by this point, and ran their section of Hester Street like a medieval thief. He put the word out to the weaker Jewish kids around the neighborhood. For the reasonable price of five cents a week, around $12 in modern money, Lucky's gang would not only leave them alone, but also protect them from more ruthless gangs. In the brutal world of the Lower East Side, the line between extortion and protection was almost non-existent. In his own way, Lucky was providing a needed service. If Lucky's self-serving recollection is correct, many Jewish kids were happy to fork over the money in exchange for services, and it was apparently a profitable endeavor. However, as we know, not all Jews were willing to pay. On one bitterly cold day, a 16-year-old Meyer Lansky was walking down Hester Street alone when he was surrounded by Lucky and his goons. 
When rudely asked for money, Meyer responded by saying, go fuck yourself. In an unexpected turn, this expression of mafia, of reckless courage and willingness to use violence to protect his honor, impressed the 18-year-old Lucky and his crew. If this little Jew was so hard alone, imagine how he would be if the odds were more fair. It's possible Lucky already knew of Meyer by reputation, because the bookish Jew had already been making waves as a neighborhood criminal. Meyer Lansky and Lucky Luciano met right as both of their criminal careers were taking off. By this time, 16-year-old Meyer and his own crew of tough Jewish kids were moving from simply watching each other's backs to becoming neighborhood moneymakers. Despite loving school, Meyer was forced to drop out at age 15 to help his family make ends meet. He initially used his intellect and family connections to get a decent job as a mechanic in a tool and dye shop. At the tool and dye shop, Meyer worked 52 hours a week for 10 cents an hour. This work was a step above the menial garment factory work that most Jews on the Lower East Side did, and Meyer excelled at it. However, after already tasting the easy street money through his limited forays and gambling, Meyer quickly decided legal money wasn't for him, and he quickly got into the Lower East Side mix. While gambling was to become his specialty, the young Meyer initially dabbled in all the criminal schemes the Lower East Side had to offer. The year he met Luciano, 16-year-old Meyer racked up charges related to assault and pimping. There are also unsubstantiated but very plausible reports from snitches of Meyer acting as muscle for labor unions and beating workers and foremen who acted as scabs for the bosses. He was also, of course, increasingly involved in various forms of neighborhood gambling. Both Meyer and Lucky were avid networkers, and throughout their late teens and beyond, they made numerous connections with like-minded mobsters of various ethnicities from across New York. However, their friendship was different and deeper. They were both far more intelligent than the average gangbanger, and this shared intellect was the cement of their friendship and partnership. Meyer had an uncanny ability to do complicated math problems in his head. This had obvious implications for the gambling rackets that were such a huge moneymaker for both men, and Meyer took great pleasure in designing mathematical models that made sure their gambling operations were high profit and low risk. Meyer was also able to serve as a human calculator, ledger book, and filing cabinet, which was exceedingly helpful given the increasingly complicated criminal schemes the gang was undertaking. Lucky, for his part, was a natural networker, negotiator, and bridge builder. He was able to make use of his Sicilian ancestry to court the growing power of ascendant Italian criminals, while also building close, mutually beneficial agreements with mobsters and their organizations, regardless of their ethnic backgrounds. As old-school Sicilian mafioso and future Cosa Nostra leader Joseph Bonanno later wrote, Lucky lived in two worlds. He lived among us the men of the old tradition. But he also lived in a world apart from us, among a largely Jewish coterie whose views of life and money-making were alien to ours. In an extremely racist, xenophobic time and place, Lucky was able to look beyond differences in religion, skin color, and accent and find a deal that benefited everyone. Finally, both men were, in their own way, very honest. When Meyer was doing calculations in his head to divide the spoils of a scheme, everyone knew he could be relied upon to give everyone a fair shake. 
Lucky, for his part, could be trusted by his partners to generally keep his word, and in a world of short-term deals, triple-crossing, and backstabbing, both men sought long-term, secure partnerships based on trust and norms. These positive attributes, along with more common skills and propensities for using violence, meant that Lucky and Meyer's days of pimping girls, running corner crap games, and extorting school children were about to be replaced by bigger, more audacious things. In the year after their initial tense meeting, they began collaborating in criminal schemes and hanging out socially. Their gangs would support each other, with Myers more active in the Jewish community and Lucky's more active in the Italian. In the first years of Meyer and Lucky's partnership, their criminal behavior continued to evolve. According to scattered, sketchy reports from informants, rumors, and their own suspect recollections, they mainly upgraded schemes that they had been involved with since childhood. Instead of robbing gold chains off factory workers, they began hijacking trucks. Instead of pimping individual women, they began shaking down and protecting pimps and madams. They also expanded their involvement in heroin trafficking and labor racketeering. Towards the end of the 19-teens, these various schemes paid, and both men, along with their fellow gang members, enjoyed a lifestyle which far outstripped that of an average Lower East Side resident. However, the best was yet to come. In 1920, the federal government passed the Volstead Act, a law prohibiting the production, sale, and transport of alcohol. While this law was ironically backed by Protestant anti-immigrant activists and advocates for good government and clean living, it was to be a windfall for a whole generation of young immigrant hustlers. Meyer and Lucky were barely out of childhood, but were perfectly situated to profit off the maelstrom prohibition would unleash. The 1920s were here, and they would roar.